come to chapter 20, which is, scholars would call, one of the most debated chapters in all the Bible. The reason that it's debated is over this issue of what we call the millennium. Not the millennium falcon, as some of you, Star Wars, I don't know if he was called that, but anyway. But, but what we're talking about here is a thousand year period of time. Millennium means 1,000. The Bible teaches a golden age all throughout the Old Testament, an age where famously, some of you have heard the lion and the lamb will be together, but that's actually not accurate to the text. Actually, what it shows is a wolf and a lamb lying together. I'll show you some of those passages in a moment. The wolf is the ancient predator of the lamb. So the message of the millennial kingdom or the golden age is that it will be a time when ancient struggles cease, when war is learned no more, when the battle finally is over. And you know, when the Bible opens in Genesis 3 and the serpent comes in and lies to our first parents and sin and death enter into the world, the rest of the Bible seems like this endless cycle of war and struggle and lost opportunity and difficulty. And, you know, we get born into this world and when we're children, the world can be a very delightful place uh, largely because we're ignorant to some things and I think that that's wonderful and that's the way we should keep it. And then we grow older and we look at the world and we can see very clearly, no matter what the pundits of this age want to tell you, there is good and there is evil. There is light and there is darkness. And one day, the struggle that we've all been embroiled in to whatever degree you find yourself in that battle, one day that battle, that war will cease. It will end. For the Christian, we can say the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. It's his, not mine. But I still have, I find myself fighting. I want to fight the good fight of faith. But one day the battle will be over. One day there will be a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. One day we will have the ultimate ruler. And he is called the Prince of Peace. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The only place in all the Bible where you, you will find a reference to a thousand years is in Revelation 20. For those of you who are taking notes with us, it's listed six times in this one chapter. There is no other place where there is a mention of a thousand year reign of Christ. The concept is there. The time is not there. And so there are three major positions on the millennium. One is called premillennialism. Premillennialism simply means that you believe that before the thousand-year reign of Christ commences or begins, Christ will return. If you believe Christ returns before the thousand years, you are pre-millennial. There are post-millennialists. If you're post-millennial, you believe that Jesus Christ returns after the thousand years. And so in a post-millennial camp, they believe that Somehow we are in the thousand years now and the church is going to make great inroads in the world 
preach the gospel to all nations. And some of these views, including all millennialism, believe that Satan is in some way today even chained. In what respect? Well, he doesn't have the same amount of influence that he had before the cross. So they make the the distinction that when Jesus died on the cross, the strong man was in some ways bound. And they see the strong man as Satan. And so his nefarious activities and his, uh, you know, uh, deception of the nations has been largely curtailed in that view. And then there is what's called an amillennial position. Ah, or A cancels out millennial. So they believe there's no millennium. Or they would say it's just simply a symbolic period of time. And then there's some versions of these views that kind of have a little bit of both, that they believe it's a period of time, but the number is symbolic. So it's not literally 1,000. 1,000 could simply, in their view, be a long period of time, but not necessarily 1,000 years. And so this is where the main parts of the debate occur. But as we take a peek at Revelation 20, we'll see uh, that there's no doubt that this is mentioned a number of times. Now, before we get into it, let's pray, and then I'm going to show you a few verses from Isaiah. Father, as we uh, get into your word now, thank you for the reality that Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. The greater David will take the throne of David, and he will rule, and he will rule with a rod of iron, and he will rule in righteousness. And we're so grateful that we are going to be part of that kingdom. We already are. It is our future. And it's incredible to think about this reality, Lord. And I pray that you would thrill our hearts with the reality, that you would encourage us in days that are not so sweet and maybe not full of light, that this is our future. And I pray that you will take this study where you want it to go and do a fresh work in the hearts of your people and those who don't know you yet, that they would come to know that hope and that peace. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 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 I was reading commentary, and if you turn to the book of Isaiah uh, this week, from a man who talked about a camp that he had experienced as a young teenager and young adult. I don't remember the name of the camp, but he described the camp as a delightful place led by a delightful man a place that you could kind of get away. It was up in the mountains. There was a lake there. You could see the stars there. And multitudes of Christians, teenagers, and young adults would descend upon this camp, and they would enjoy zip lining and uh, basketball and fun on the lake, and they would light a campfire at night, and they would sing songs to the Lord, and people would get right with God and people would encourage one another. And he said it was in many ways an oasis in his life. And he said the, the attitude of the camp largely kind of descended from the leader of the camp. He was a very joyful individual. He wasn't cynical. He didn't speak uh, nasty things about other people. And He said that whenever he went to the camp, whether as a kid or ultimately serving, it was such a beautiful place. He said, if you even spoke a cross word about somebody, it was almost unacceptable there. There was just such a different vibe there. And he said, for him, thinking back to this uh, time in his life, it's the closest view he could ever get to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you have a place like that. 
a time in your life like that where, you know, there was that kind of setting. But that is just a small taste of what's ahead. Isaiah is the book I've asked you to turn to. I'm going to show you just a few passages that paint passages that paint this picture of this coming rule of Christ. Isaiah 2, verse 2 says, Now, Isaiah 2, 2, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established, Isaiah 2, 2, as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The last time I checked, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, the statistic I saw is that there's over 100 wars going on in the world right now. Not only are there wars and skirmishes and people who practice genocide, but there are people who sit at their desks and claim to have, you know, a button that they can push to obliterate people. And uh, whatever their motivations may be, whatever their reasons are for making their threats, whether they think it's for self-preservation or for purposes of power, it doesn't do a whole lot to the peace that earth, I think, and the people of earth desire. Isaiah prophesies a coming one who will be born. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Isaiah 9, 6, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince, the Hebrew word is Sar. It means the ruler, the leader, the chief, of peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was written 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he would be one who would ultimately rule on the throne of David. Isaiah 11 a few chapters to the right, gives us this picture of this coming kingdom. After it paints the picture of the Messiah and how he will rule in righteousness, it says, Isaiah eleven six, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid or the goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. The cow, also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The animal kingdom will no longer be ferocious or carnivorous. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then finally, all the way to the end of Isaiah, if you go to 65, Isaiah 65, Isaiah is talking to us about the end of the age and the new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65, in verse 17, 
he says these words. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things, 65, 17, shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying, which has sadly filled Jerusalem over the years multiple times. Skip down to 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. There are other passages I could show you, but this is the character of that coming kingdom. It's a character of peace. It's a it's a place of peace. It's something that the world longs for, but we can't seem to get it right. We just can't seem to find the ways of peace. Why is that? Well, it's because of sin. It's because of selfishness. It's because we have our agendas. Man, really, from the fall, has done this to himself. And the End of the story, the judgment of God, the thousand-year reign of Christ is found in Revelation 20. It will continue in the next few chapters, but here's how John paints it. I saw an angel coming down, Revelation 20, verse 1, from heaven, having the key of the abyss or the bottomless pit, and a great chain is in his hand. Now, this angel is not called a strong angel. It's just an angel. We don't know if this is Michael. We don't know which angel this is, but he is coming down out of heaven and he has some implements. He has a key, the key of the abyss or the bottomless pit, pit, and he has a great chain in his hand. And he is about to chain the enemy of our souls and his name is Satan. And again, in the book of Revelation, we have to remember that we are dealing with uh, symbolic imagery. We are not to take everything in a wooden, literal sense. So do I think an angel is coming down with an enormous, literal chain? I don't think so. I think this imagery is painting what God will do to Satan. Right now, the Bible tells us that there are certain angels who left their proper abode who are imprisoned or incarcerated in some way. Does God need a chain to hold them? I don't think so, because remember, angels are non-corporeal. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. They don't really have a body. So how do you chain a spirit? If you've got any insight on that, email me. I'd like to know what properties you would use for that. But the, the lesson is nonetheless the same, that a chain and a key has been given to this angel and he's going to come down and he's going to do some business and he's going to do that business with Satan. I mentioned to you that some people who have different views of Revelation 20 believe that Satan in some way is already bound. They believe that his activity has been curtailed or limited in some way. How they come to that conclusion, I do not know because that's not what I see in the Bible. 
I see the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 express concern for the Corinthian congregation. Just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's craftiness, I am fearful that you will be deceived by that same serpent. He, he uh, shrouds himself as an angel of light. Even in the New Testament, Paul says that Satan thwarted us. There were things going on that were satanically energized. 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan goes about like a what? Roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Doesn't sound like a chain to me. If it is, it's a long chain. In the book of Job, Satan appears before the Lord and there's a dialogue that goes back and forth. And basically, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Satan is still active from my read of the New Testament. I don't think he's been curtailed in his activities, although everything he does is still ultimately under the sovereignty of God. In that sense, he's on a chain. Everybody understand what I'm saying? God must allow what he does. God is ultimately sovereign, but still Satan is actively on the hunt. And he's been destroying lives for as long as really we can remember back to the fall. If you parked for a second and tried to think about the untold damage that he has done to lives, I don't think words could do it justice. Every time someone dies, I was just talking to a sweet sister in the congregation. She was recalling a memorial service for her father. She knew that her father knew the Lord. She knew where her dad was. But in another sense, she said, you know, every time somebody dies, it's almost like Satan is laughing. Are you sick of that? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of watching people who I love and, you know, looking around at a disease-ridden world in many respects, looking at death and him who had the power of death is Satan, according to Hebrews chapter two. And people live in fear of death. Ephesians six says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, don't be ignorant of his schemes. Does it sound to you like the devil's incarcerated? I don't think so. Now, I'm making the point because there are some, you, if you read on this, who are going to say, well, the one thing he can't really do anymore is lie to the nations. Well, I see nations in total darkness today. Now, there are moves of God in China and in other places in Africa, it's true. But there are other nations that are in total darkness. There's a little light in some places but there are many nations that have been swept over by lies. Doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. This angel laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Notice in verse 2, Satan is called a dragon and then he's called a serpent. Which is it? He's neither. He is not a dragon and he is not a snake. But these descriptions describe aspects of his character. 
He is like a snake in that he's slithery and, and so forth, slimy and whatever. <laughs> what, what, what else are snakes? Lispy. <laughs> and dragons are this fearful thing that we think about. And this angel laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? For a thousand years. Now here's where we have this idea of the millennium. Satan, at this point, we've, we had the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, and now we have this angel seizing the dragon. You can almost you know, see the dragon trying to break loose of his grasp. You know, you can think of grabbing the tiger by the tail. Bad idea. You better have a chair and a whip, right? But Satan can't break the grasp of this angel. In the book of Isaiah, one of the places that scholars believe may be a reference to Lucifer describes it this way, Isaiah 14, 13 through 16. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of, of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Do you think there's going to be a point in time when believers get a look at Satan? Maybe at this point in time when he's seized and shown for what he really is. Here's what he is. He is a fallen angel. He is not the equal to God on the evil side. He was created by God. He may have been an archangel. We don't know for sure. And he fell and he fell hard. And that's all he is. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have power. We know angels are very powerful. But at the same time, we need to realize who he is. And we need to resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway or the power of the wicked one. We also see in 1 John that Satan can't touch us. And so this angelic warrior seizes the thrashing dragon, if you will, and binds him, and he is bound for a thousand years. That's what's going to make part of the beauty of this period of time is that Satan's no longer going to be up to his terrible activities. He's going to be chained. He's going to be bound. And threw him into the abyss, verse 3, shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until, here's the mention again, the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Just note that when the release does occur, and it won't be a jailbreak, it will be a release, it will be for a short time. Until that time, he ends up in a place called the abusos, the bottomless pit. Is it literal? Is there some sort of subterranean uh, hole somewhere in the heart of the earth that, you know, is set up so that it's a bottomless pit and a bottomless fall? I don't know. But it sure is a scary concept. <laughs> you ever had a dream that you were falling in your dream? And I don't know about you, I always wake up before I hit the ground. 
which is really convenient. <laughs> but some people have said, could you ever, could you imagine falling and never hitting bottom, a bottomless pit? It's a scary thought. And oftentimes when the Bible gives you a lake of fire or uh, you know, darkness that you can't even see your hand in front of your face or a bottomless pit, it's painting metaphoric pictures to show you how scary it can be to be under the judgment of God. When Jesus was upon the earth, he encountered that man with legion. And they said, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, 29. In Luke's account, 8, 31, they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abusos. Luke 8, 31. Have you come to torment us before the time? It seems that the demons know what their ultimate place will be. And so in chapter 20, verses one through three, you have the first panel of four different views that we're gonna get in this text. And you have the chaining of Satan and he is sealed for a thousand years. Next in Revelation 20, verse verse four, he says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. Now this, we don't know if this is a heavenly scene or not, but what John says he sees next is thrones. Write down Daniel 7, 9 and 10. I kept looking until thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now these who are on the thrones, who are they? We don't know, but we saw 24 elders earlier in earlier chapters of Revelation. Is that who this is? We don't know for sure, but check out 1 Corinthians 6. Go back in your New Testament a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 2. Paul is dealing with the Corinthian congregation. There's lots of problems there. And he says to them these words, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6, 2. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Can't you guys, says Paul to the church at Corinth, even figure out the smallest dispute among you? Don't you know that one day you are going to judge angels? You say, Pastor Michael, what do you mean judge angels? Which angels? I don't think we'll be judging any good angels because they have no reason to be judged. But I think in some sense, God will include us in the judging of evil angels and even watching the judgment of Satan when he's bound and incarcerated. Everybody with me? I don't know how this will all work, but here's the application if you turn back to Revelation for the modern Christian. Can we not, if, we're, if this is the position of the church, if this is who we are, can we not figure out how to settle disputes among ourselves? Hello? You know, the history of the church has been littered 
with disputes that have gone before secular law courts. And I'm sure you can all fill in the blanks. Even a story I heard of where a, a church, members of a church ended up suing each other in a secular court and finally tracked back the problem that at a church potluck, a kid got a piecer, biggest, bigger piece of prime rib than an elder in the church. That's what started the whole thing. It was our church, 10 years. No, I'm just kidding. I was the elder. No, just kidding. Now, I do have issues with certain children on Sunday mornings if I see them with a maple bar. I just want to let you guys, no, I'm just kidding. I've, give it to the children. They, one commentator writes, the destiny of redeemed men and women to one day be higher than the angels and even to judge them must greatly annoy a certain high angel who did not want to serve as an inferior creature now and did not want that inferior creature to be raised up even higher than he. So he rebelled against God and is determined to keep as much of humanity as possible from sitting in judgment of himself. We can imagine the perverse, proud pleasure Satan takes over every soul that goes to hell. He says, they won't sit in judgment over me. Oh, I know, it's, it's a little strange to think about, isn't it? But we are caught in a cosmic drama. And much of the world, and sadly even the church, largely lives in ignorance of it. And I saw the souls, Revelation 20, if you pick it up again in verse 4, where we looked at the first part of Revelation 20, verse 4. We saw the thrones, and now we see the souls. Suke is the Greek word of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. This is a group of martyrs. And, connecting word, I think a separate group here, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. If you want to write down Revelation 13, especially verses 15 through 18, you can go back and revisit that. You remember that you have to have the mark in order to what? To buy or sell. And so people are going to be under great pressure. And if you don't take the mark, there's a, obviously a very serious price to pay. There's a group of martyrs here that John sees. They were killed, beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, I think a separate group, <coughs> excuse me, and had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. And they, it would appear the two groups, the martyrs and others, came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. Now, so far, I think we've had three mentions of a thousand years. And so here we have these two groups. One group paid the ultimate price. The other group is also there. How do you think they ended up in the presence of God? What do you think? They were raptured. Because, look, if I've been laying out to you what's called a... Uh, pre-wrath view of the rapture, which means that the church will go through a good portion of Daniel's 70th week, okay? That means that when Jesus comes, he's going to rapture and rescue a group of believers. That means there has to be some believers left to rapture. 
Amen? And in Revelation 7, when we see this great multitude in heaven, they are an uncountable number. And so it would appear that even if the times get hard for the church, much of the church survives it. Maybe through supernatural protection, I don't know. Some people die, others do not. And the church is rescued by God. And they end up in the presence of Almighty God. And so you have martyrs, first group in chapter uh, verse four. You have a second group that are there. They refuse to take the mark because if you take the mark, you're not a Christian. You're doomed if you take it. So they didn't take the mark. They survived and they were raptured. And they are with the Lord. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, everybody take a look. Just skip ahead to verse five. It would appear that the best way that this should be rendered is to put a parenthesis before the word the at the beginning of verse five and a parenthesis after the word completed at the end of that sentence. So the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That could be in parentheses to make this, I think, more understandable to us because the first resurrection at the end of verse five is in reference to the people of verse four. It's the first resurrection. Now, some of our all-millennial friends believe that the first resurrection is spiritual. They say this is not a physical resurrection. It speaks more to regeneration or a spiritual resurrection. I don't buy it. I'll tell you why. Because the context is talking about people who have died in verse 4, and now they live again. They come to life again. They have been resurrected to physicalness, if you will. They came to life again, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, if the thousand years are literal, that's pretty cool, because you're going to live longer than Methuselah. <laughs> Woo! You could be, someone might ask you, how old are you? You say, I'm 247. Check this out. Shabam! Right? It's not going to be a problem. Why? <laughs> Did you all like the shabam? Wasn't even in my notes, I promise. Why? Because you are going to have a resurrected body. No more sin. No more death. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. If you lost some of your vertical leap, it's coming back. If you lost some of your hair, it's coming back. Amen. Woo! Come on. If you have too many sparklers in your hair, that is, not your original hair color, and you are tired of trying to cover it with not-so-convenient products, it's coming back. Praise the Lord. Yes. Oh, and that's just part of it. You see, everything that was, been, that was lost and robbed from us will be restored. And a thousand years is just a drop in the bucket because we will never die. This is the first resurrection. If you are a Christian, you are part 
of the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, I think now unbelievers, verse five, did not come to life until what? Until the thousand years were completed. That is the second resurrection. If you are part of the first resurrection, then you are told something that is a blessing. Blessed and holy, verse six, is the one who has part in what? The first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they, or we, will be priests of God and of Christ, and we will reign with him for how long? <laughs> for a thousand years. Now, a thousand years could be longer. You could either take it literally or not. The church in the premillennial view has taken the number literally. And then we would go on into eternity. By the way, where will we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years? On the earth. There's gonna be new heavens and a new earth. And by the way, in this thousand year period of time, it's going to be very physical. You are going to be you in the resurrection. I have been sending emails to God to be six foot four. I do not know if God hears those prayers <laughs> or even cares. And I say that really jokingly, I haven't. But it would be nice. We were over here at the end of one of the services recently and I was up on one of the steps and my wife looked at me and went, see what that's like. Come here, put your arm around me. And so I did. And she went, wow. And I went, Shh. I'm going to get me some platform shoes or something. Because she hasn't said wow like that. <laughs> anyway, never mind. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> if you're a believer... You are part of the first resurrection. When will the resurrection happen? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. The resurrection and the rapture go together. So when the Lord comes, there's going to be a resurrection to life. And if the premillennial view is correct and the thousand years are literal, there is a space of a thousand years that separates the first resurrection from the second resurrection. The first resurrection is a resurrection to life. You can write, write this down for your notes. I don't have time to go there tonight. John 5, 24 through about 29. Jesus said there is a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. The dead at the end of a thousand years will be resurrected only to be judged. And so there will be the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. In Luke 14, 14, Jesus said, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So if that view is correct, a thousand years separates the two resurrections. You want to be part of the first resurrection. 
And when the thousand years are completed or expired, verse seven, Satan will be released from his prison. He won't break out. He's gonna be released. And in verse three, if you just put that in your margin, he'll be released for a short time, whatever that space is. And, it, and he will come out to deceive the nations, which um, he has not been allowed to do for the entire millennium as we've talked about, which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And you say, who are these people? That they, there's this huge number and they want to fight God again. Well, they're people who were either born during the millennial period or people who survived that period of time and the earth was populated again. And they live a thousand years with Jesus ruling and reigning along with his people, but they don't like things the way that they are. Can you imagine that? You know, because I know if we you know, have a period of time where things are good for us and we're walking with God. We stay there. We, we don't go back and make the same mistakes over and over again. None of you do that, right? You, you guys don't have short memories. You guys don't know that phrase. The one thing we know about history is that we don't learn from history. Should this shock us? I mean, sometimes you read this passage and you're like, what in the world? Why would you let him out, Lord? Because apparently some people born during this time have not had that chance to really choose. And so he's going to lead another rebellion. And there's going to be a bunch of people that come up on this broad plain, verse 9. Very fitting that they come on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Night, night. So much for your rebellion. And James and John are going to be somewhere in a corner saying, finally, we were asking when we were on the planet, you remember? Just call fire down from heaven. Just call fire down from heaven. Finally, thank you, Lord. <laughs> anyway. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Whether that's literal or not, I'll let you wrestle with that where the beast and the false prophet are also, by the way, they were thrown in at the end of Revelation 19. So if the beast and false prophet are still there and a thousand years is literal, then they've been in there for a Oh my goodness. And, oh, and this is what's sobering. And they, as the devil joins his unholy trinity, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, the idea of a judge from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. Now I think here is the second resurrection. I saw the dead Notice they're called the dead, so it would seem that they're going to be raised for this purpose. I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead 
were judged from the things which were written in the books according to what? According to their deeds. Notice the emphasis, the dead would appear to be the second resurrection. It's the small, the great status, pedigree, position, fame, bank account mean nothing. All that's going to be measured here is the deeds. If the books were opened and you were measured on that day by the deeds that you had done, how would you fare against the Ten Commandments? How would you measure up? You don't want to be judged by your deeds. <laughs> and you're not going to be. Because we are saved by grace, through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no man should boast. By the works of the law, Galatians 2.16, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. None. You're either saved by grace or you're not saved at all. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so here's the dead. And the books are open and you can hear a lot of gulping going on. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades, Hades appears to be a holding compartment for the dead, gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged. Every one of them, How? according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. By the way, just note it. Hades, the holding place for the unrighteous dead, at least now, that's what we believe it is. And death itself die. Death and Hades die one day. Aren't you glad? They die. Oh, death, where is your sting? The last enemy that will be destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, is death. Death has a date with death. How's that? And God can do this because he is life. Death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, sadly and soberly, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And all God's people said, <laughs> wow. The apostles sent out by Jesus found that they had power and authority over demonic spirits. And they were excited. And they said, Lord, in your name, even the spirits are subject to us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amen. If you're a Christian, your name is in the book of life. And that's where it will stay. If you're not a Christian, could I just encourage you to make sure your name's in the book of life? <laughs> I don't know what else I would want to say. I think you read it for yourself. Just make sure your name's there. How do you get it there? You believe. 
You trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, as we uh, come to the close of this message, we are so grateful that our names as believers are written there. My name is there. Every soul, every uh, sweet saint that's here tonight, their name is there. Thank you for that, Jesus. And if you're here tonight, you can hear my voice, or you may be listening to this later. If you're not sure your name is there, just make sure. Believe. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You'll never taste this second death if you're born again. If you're born twice, you will die once. If you're born once, you will die twice. But if you're born again to a living hope, the second death will not touch you. You're alive in Christ. And no one can take that away from you. And if you're here and you're not sure you're a Christian, the Bible has painted this picture to get us to make sure and to have hope. And so if it's you, it's something like this. Lord Jesus, I would encourage you to pray it if you're not sure you're a Christian. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you rose to defeat death. Thank you that you took my punishment and shame at the cross. Thank you that you defeated the devil and his principalities there. Thank you that you have offered a gift of salvation to me. I believe, I repent, I trust in you for my salvation and you alone. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Lord, for the saints that are here, may you encourage them in their faith. And Lord, um, as a new year is ahead of us, whatever you want us to yield to you afresh, whatever changes we need to make to align ourselves better with your kingdom, whatever excuses we've been making for not being disciplined and not doing what we're supposed to do, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Let's, let us get a fresh start in this year. We're excited about what you're gonna do. We're excited about the lives we can touch. We're excited about sharing the everlasting gospel. We're excited about seeing people discipled and changed. Let it start with us, Lord. Let it start with the people in this room. Set a fire in our hearts, Lord. Refresh us by your Holy Spirit. Give us fresh passion and vision for the year ahead of us. We lay it at your feet and pray that you would be glorified in this year ahead. And I thank you for the precious saints. Again, bless their families, strengthen them, protect them, Bless them, heal them, strengthen them in every way. In Jesus' name I pray.